Warm Regards is supported by Arcadia Power, the first company to give you a clean energy choice on your monthly power bill. Arcadia's online platform provides clean energy options to homeowners and renters in all 50 states. Anyone who pays a utility bill is eligible to sign up and start using clean energy at home at no extra cost with the free 50% wind energy option. Reduce your impact and get four free LED light bulbs sent to your door when you sign up at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. That's arcadiapower.com, A-R-C-A-D-I-A, arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. Arcadia Power, help to change the way America consumes energy. Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse here in Tucson, Arizona, fresh off a perfectly relaxing month of paternity leave, which, you know, you can't see the irony font on audio, but <laughs> but let me tell you that changing diapers at 2.30 is much preferable way to spend your time than analyzing this election, but this is where we are, so... Good news is that this is almost over. So um, we have a few days left, actually one week left exactly. We're recording this on November 1st. The latest odds on 538 has Trump with about a 28% chance of winning. So slightly better than flipping tails twice in two tries, which all of us have done before. So we know that it's unlikely, but not extremely unlikely that Trump will win. This week, we're gonna tackle what might be in store when it comes to climate after the election. Specifically, we're going to examine the future of the Republican Party post-Trump and sketch out a scenario that could lead to full-blown bipartisan climate policy in the near term, and I am not even kidding. So assuming Trump loses, his failure to acknowledge the increasingly pressing reality of climate change won't be the main reason why, but some factions of the Republican Party are already gearing up to make sure that future conservative presidential candidates are not so out of touch with their thinking on the world's most important issue. Our special guest this week is squarely at the center of what we can call the emerging eco-right. Alex Bozmaski is the Director of Strategy and Operations for Republican, where he's helped lead an educational initiative to motivate his fellow conservatives on climate change. His journey from climate denier to clean energy campaigner could serve as an example in a single person of the future of the Republican Party. Alex, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be with you, Eric. Great. And to help Alex and I chat this out, I'm joined, as always, by the New York Times, Andy Revkin, and our resident paleoecologist, Jacqueline Gill. Hey, guys. Hey. Good to be with you. Okay, so let's get down to it. Um, Alex, can you... Tell us how you got here. I mean, a little bit about your own personal journey. And it seems pretty interesting. I mean, that's why we have you on, of course. <laughs> sure. Uh, I was a pretty politically active youngster and uh, very involved with the conservative movement in Wisconsin and the Republican Party. I went off to college hoping to get my uh, feet wet in politics. And uh, I had my own little newspaper called The Right Idea, which had like the logo was an eagle clasping a Christian cross. And uh, after George Bush won the 2008, or sorry, 2004 election, I was, uh, I carried a cardboard cutout of of, uh, Bush around campus smoking a cigar and the college Democrat president tackled me and 
in Copley Square, broke bush in half. Um, and then I put on this uh, conference <laughs> called the uh, Take Back Georgetown Day, which was a pretty frothy, you know, young conservative event where we uh, made a lot of noise. And I really liked making noise. And one of the ways I did that was keeping my hand up in these classes that had a lot of liberal professors. And one of those classes was climate science uh, with Professor Nathan Haltman. And I enrolled in that specifically to heckle him. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is where the climate, <clears throat> the, the like the professor on the podcast just like loses it. Go ahead. This is this is great. Well, Jacqueline, if you ever do get a a heckler, what the way Professor Haltman approached me was asking me to justify some of these, you know, conspiratorial claims that I was making based on whatever I was hearing out of the out of the conservative tribe, out of the talk radio tribe. And I did it. I tried. And I, over time, I think what I realized is that all these things I was finding, all these uncertainties, the things that we don't know, because we just don't know so much about the climate system, but we do know a lot. And I, I was confusing risk with lack of urgency. Mm -hmm. I was, I was conf confusing like conspiracy for uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And uncertainty as like the essence of risk really drew me into the, the issue as important. And, you know, as you do, when you find things that are important to you or fascinating to you, you look around in your world and you try to, you try to find folks in your, in your network that will help you figure out how to think about this issue. And I tried to do that with my Republican and conservative friends and with the, uh, on climate change after I, you know, worked with Professor Haltman to better understand the nature of the risk and uh, the truth is, I, I sort of discovered that while the conservatives have this very strong legacy of environmental pragmatism and legislation and leadership, climate change had very little conservative thinking applied to it. I was frustrated. I somehow I saw this issue, the civilizational issue that I was just coming to understand. I felt betrayed by my uh, by my tribe for not furnishing me with the right information um, and for filtering it in a really dishonest way. And I felt, you know, ill-equipped to tackle the issue with my deeply held free enterprise and conservative beliefs because none of the folks that I looked up to had been really thinking about it. After college, I moved to Tanzania and started a company doing rural energy projects with uh, uh, for carbon offsets. So it's some, a program called the Clean Development Mechanism. And I worked for a few years trying to develop um, these CDM projects in East Africa. And then the carbon market crashed, and I had seen some really glaring examples of both climate policy working to make poor people's lives better and climate policy working to expropriate the land from poor people and make their lives much worse. So I know that climate policy can have profound impacts on the least of these. And I saw that firsthand in Africa. And after the market crashed, came back to the States looking for a way to make sure that American climate policy led by conservatives the, did right by the least of these and was effective and not wrought with um, you know, government failure as some of the carbon offset programs in Europe and the world had been up to that point. And then there was this guy, Bob Inglis, who had martyred himself in Congress and I stalked him down and we started this thing called the Energy and Enterprise Initiative under his leadership. It's been four years since then. We're still uh, trying to, you know, build this eco-right movement. 
Yeah, and so Republic N has grown out of your relationship with Bob Inglis, and um, you're, so you're specifically aiming to recruit um, people that are like you that are conservative by you know by by tribe, but agree that that climate change is something that humans are causing and that we need to do something about as soon as possible. Yeah, Bob and I traveled the country for a couple of years talking to college Republicans and Federalist Societies and energy clubs at business schools and chambers of commerce and things and, and groups like that. And we kept hearing the same thing from folks that would come up to us after our, our talks and uh, say, wow, I can't believe that you exist. I didn't know other Republican or other conservatives think like me. Uh, that's so great. What can I do to help? And after we heard enough people say, what can I do to help? It made us realize that we needed a grassroots component to the eco right. It's very robustly defended intellectually in Washington with great scholars that work on, on, you know, applying conservative thought to environmental problems, but where we really have a, a missing piece in, in making this happen is the grassroots level. So uh, fast so, forward to the 2016 election, and you are specifically using Trump in some cases to recruit new members now. So, um, what 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 is it about Trump then that you feel ha, 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 has sort of gone wrong in terms of climate? I I think there are, we have quite a few Trump refugees in the conservative movement and the Republican Party, and they feel alienated from these wrong turns we've taken, and uh, they, you know, there's. It's really exciting when you can take your deeply held beliefs and principles and you can apply them to things that you care about. And it's just an exciting thing to, you know, I don't know if I would have ever found, uh, you know, the civilizational urgency of climate change if I didn't grow up in a household that taught me to love God and love your neighbor because, you know, this whole doing something about climate change thing is about loving people that you're never going to meet. And they're never going to know you did anything for them either. And uh, I just don't, yeah, and I feel like, so Trump, not only does he alienate folks with specific policies or specific specific examples of just glaring ignorance on important issues, but uh, also just his, I think the way that he sees the world, his, his worldview is uh, off-putting to a lot of God-fearing conservatives that, you know, and, and, and free enterprise conservatives too, you know. How, how do you... Uh, um... When you're circulating, how do you deal with um, the the uh, conservatives who um, flock around? Um, well, there was a book by uh, Epstein, I think, called "The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels." In other words, there's lots of moral cases here. When you're in the values arguments, um, especially in parts of Africa, you were spent time in. It's pretty easy to make the moral case for access to any kind of energy other than charcoal. Sure, uh, and I think using state violence to prevent people from accessing you know, that energy would be immoral, but uh, it, it's important that we look at the full uh, situation that, you know, our energy economy is in. And in those poor countries, there's a couple things to keep in mind. First, uh, there's tremendous amounts of energy poverty. So sure, folks are using traditional forms of, of energy, but uh, a typical family in Tanzania uses as much energy as it takes an American to run their refrigerator for six months. That's how much they use in a whole year. Um, so if it, and if we were to assume that Tanzanians would use, let's say an at the average amount of energy that uh, middle income countries use per capita, 
then there would only be one energy source locally that's available, and that's coal. Um, so we find ourselves in a bit of a resource trap in these places. And, you know, and, and then the other thing to keep in mind is that most of these uh, poor countries that are dependent on either traditional or fossil fuels, the fossil fuel countries are, you know, generally these are parastatal, monopolistic, government-run uh, resource traps that keep a lot, most of the folks in the country out of the wealth of its production. So uh, I, I look at it and think, wow, there's, so if, if fossil fuels are so great, wouldn't Africa be lit up by now? I mean, they got a ton of it. Luanda, Angola is the most, is the most expensive city in the world to live in. Um, but that wealth created there sure isn't going to the folks in Angola. So, I mean, I don't know where the, where the moral lines are, are drawn on this. I, I just feel like you can't light up Africa with dirty energy. You just, you don't have enough and the companies that run it are real corrupt and they can't get it done. So you got to light up Africa with clean energy. And I think that, you know, grid connected infrastructure is tr super important, but distributed energy is also super important. So there's a there's an analog now um, to to that that's what's happening um, in a very small way in in Washington State this year is that they have America's first carbon tax on the ballot in a statewide election and we have uh, this sort of ideological battle between um, environmentalists you know on the one hand uh, it's not a perfect proposal you know there are, there are some you know, accusations of, of, of the, the, the communities that are going to be affected most by this tax. Um, and it's a tax swap, too. So it's designed to reduce sales tax to, to make it easier to, to bear for for the um, for the poorest uh, people in Washington state. But 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 there's there's this backlash that that says that, you know, since since we don't have a perfect um, proposal, then therefore we should vote against it and try again with a per perfect proposal. And and we have, I think, what I can sense in in, in your in your uh, responses, Alex, is that we, we are we're sort of running out of time when it comes to climate change. And it's the people that are on the front lines, the people that that are are sort of left behind by by our our um, our st our structures of of um, of capitalism the way we have it set up right now that that are are sort of um going to be impacted the most by climate change too so so um it, it, you know we have these moral dilemmas at each time even when you're trying to actually put in new and novel policies to fight climate change you're still running against these these battles of of is it the right thing to to do and will we actually harm people by by trying to do the right thing it, it, it's just it, i know that this is just one one thing that's happening right now but 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 it's but it's being played out all over the world too i agree it's what's happening in washington is very telling and and maybe it points the way towards the new paradigm of environmental politics because we are seeing strange bedfellows and a really terrific policy that's being stymied by an environmental left that is not used to seeing prices a price on carbon on the ballot and uh the fact that climate change affects poor folks more than the rest of us and the fact that poor folks spend a, a much higher percentage of their income on energy than the rest of us means that climate change is not a discrete issue that we can tackle in a vacuum these are complicated it's a complicated issue that spans the whole economy 
and touches everyone. And that's why it's so civilizationally uh, urgent, and that's also why it's so remarkably difficult. While we have to keep in mind the, uh, the disproportionate impacts and the disproportionate differentiated responsibilities um, of climate change, that the environmental left has this tendency to try to use climate change as the pretense to tackle a whole myriad of social goals that they have and that may be tangentially connected to climate change because everything is tangentially connected to climate change. But boy, I, I, I find it frustrating when Sierra Club, League of Conservation Voters with Van Jones and the environmental left up in Washington when they're trying to stop a price on carbon, which is the most efficient, most efficacious thing that we can do to reduce emissions. And they're doing it because, oh, we our sl the slush fund isn't big enough. I can't spend the slush fund on the projects that I want to spend it on. Look at what they did in California. Boy, wouldn't that be cool if we had a honey pot like Jerry Brown has to spend on whatever we want. Like, sure, wouldn't that be a great world if everyone thought like you and you got to set government policy and spending. But boy, why are you trying to saddle climate change and the urgency of climate change with this view that subordinates climate to every other social goal that presents in society? Very so I actually have a question about that. When you say subverts to other social goals, I mean, this. a lot of what you're saying surprises me because it doesn't necessarily jive with, with a lot of Republican policy that doesn't necessarily value things like safety nets for the poor or, um, you know, there, there's, for better or worse, the Republican Party has a reputation as being a party that, that is not very friendly to minorities. Um, and, and it's not just the poor that suffer the most with climate change. It's also people of color um, are disproportionately affected often. So I'm just wondering, how, how do you reconcile the, what, what you're saying with the actual policies that um, are, are espoused by your party? Well, firstly, so long as Trump is at the helm, I don't have a party. That's fair. Um, but I also think it's unfair to label conservatives as somehow uh, as somehow antagonistic to the interests of poor people. They, they certainly have been some wrong turns that we've taken. But let's remember that free enterprise is the most powerful engine uh, of growth and has lifted more people out of poverty than any other force in human history. And you know, let's also remember that every single piece of landmark environmental legislation passed in the history of this republic was signed by a Republican president. So I, I feel like like that may be a slightly unfair line of attack on the conservative philosophy. But, you know, with Trump talking, it's not unfair to label the Trump Republican Party like that. Well, I mean, I think I think about things like regulation, though. I mean, we know that um, <clears throat> environmental re regulation, corporate regulation, those things are can protect the people who, who need that protection the most um, and who don't necessarily have a, a safety net to, to fall back on um, or who bear the brunt of, of lack of regulation. Um, so I'm just thinking of, of, you know, examples like that, that. Well, sure. Like if, if you have, uh, I don't think that's partisan. I think that that's, you know, when you have 128,000 premature deaths from inhaled soot from coal plants each year, and then you got the members of Congress that, the, that are representing coal, you know, fighting against regulations to clean that soot up. Now, those, those representatives are Democrats and Republicans. You know, Joe Manchin was the guy who shot cap and trade, you know, on his commercial. So it's, it, I think it has a lot more to do with just 
all politics is local um, in, in some of these instances. But, you know, on a broader on a broader level, regulations also, you know, when government interventions result in government failures, sometimes those government failures are much smaller than the market failures that the intervention solved. Jobs are pretty important, too. And if you know, if, if, if you regulate folks out of having jobs then their quality of life isn't necessarily going to go up. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Arcadia Power. If it only took you three minutes to ensure your home was using clean versus dirty energy, would you do it? Well, here's your chance. Arcadia Power is an online energy company giving anyone who pays a utility bill in the U.S. the choice to use clean energy. Arcadia's platform is available to homeowners and apartment dwellers in all 50 states, and it costs nothing extra to sign up and match your electricity usage with clean energy from wind farms across the country. Reduce your impact and support wind farms while receiving a better, more modern energy experience. Arcadia provides a personalized energy dashboard to help you track your usage, impact, manage your energy bills, and take advantage of energy-saving tips and efficient products to help lower your bills. Warm Regards listeners will get four free LED light bulbs sent to their door when they sign up at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. Four free LED bulbs. You can't beat that. Those energy-saving LEDs will help you save 80% on your lighting costs. If you're in support of a cleaner, healthier future, this is a no-brainer. Sign up today at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. That's arcadiapower, A-R-C-A-D-I-A, power.com slash warmregards to get four free LED light bulbs and make an impact on your energy bill. Um, so, Alex, back in 2010 with the climate bill, it finally died its long-anticipated death. Um, I wrote a piece, and I think it was the second or third time I'd written after talking to political wonks that... Um, Essentially, people look at the architecture of Congress, uh, particularly the Senate, and say the only way in America to end up with some kind of substantive climate legislation, um, whether it includes regulations or whatever, um, is with a moderate Republican president. That's the only way you can have that happen in our system. Of course, that begs the question of can we ever find a moderate Republican president? being electable. But but separate from that, I don't know if you had that own sense yourself of whether with a Democrat in office is it simply impossible, uh, at least with some division in the Congress, to ever think about having climate legislation. I don't know. I, uh, I, I'd love to hear an optimistic case for, for a Clinton presidency that can pass a bipartisan climate bill. But you're right, we're in it would be historically unprecedented for that to happen. And I, but you know, if we had to have hope for anything to get done in the next four years with either president, you, we have to remember that you need a bipartisan coalition. You just, you need it. You need it for everything. There's a few things that, you know, all major environmental legislation have in common. One, there's a bipartisan coalition. Two, a Republican president signed it. Three, no one was happy when it was over. Like everyone was angry because and, and, and that works out really well for the green groups because they're lobbying. They're, they get their urgency, the sentiment, which is very true or very important from, you know, the environmental left grassroots and they push hard. And then these green groups that lobby Washington and ultimately strike a compromise with the Republican president. And then they go back to those green groups and who in turn go back to their memberships and they say, you guys should be proud. Look at. I mean, I know this kind of this isn't great. It's not what you wanted, but boy, it, it we had to we had to bend because 
that son of a gun, Ronald Reagan, that son of a gun, George H.W. Bush, this is as far as they would go. And we were, you know, the Republican turns into a little bit of the, of the, uh, the agent of compromise or something, the, the, the thing for the environmental groups to blame on, blame it on. And you don't have something like that in Washington state right now. There's no one to blame it on because all the, the coalitions to create 732, you know, were, uh, they weren't public before the ballot initiative. Like there's no, there's no individual to, to that, that they can say, this is the reason why we have to take something that's less than perfect. Um, if you don't have a reason to take something that's less than perfect, a reason to compromise, uh, it makes it real hard to get anything done. So um, let, let me read you back something, Alex, that, that we, that, that, that you, you said to me in the article that we published in the New Yorker, um, is that without policy competition, we're stuck in a status quo that's utterly insufficient and inefficient. Um, and so I think the way I read your organization is that you are trying to, um, help provide a voice for people that are going to come up with some of that policy competition to the Democrats, assuming the Democrats are going to be in control of the white house and probably the Senate, um, for the next four years. So, um, what, what would, what would it look like to you, um, to, to imagine a scenario in which Republicans can lead on climate in the future in the next four years and the next 40 years, what, what would that look like? What, you know, knowing that the overarching goal is zero emissions as soon as possible, how do you get there? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because, uh, what a question that is, right? Uh, how do you get there? Uh, well, firstly, demographics are destiny. And while the headlines might say, Oh, conservatives don't care about global warming. Oh, Trump thinks it's a hoax. You know, the trend lines are firmly in the favor of a free enterprise party emerging from the rubble here uh, because the rebuild that we have to do uh, it has a lot, of, uh, a lot of prospects that are refugees in the political system. You know, uh, most millennials are fiscally conservative. They don't want to inherit a crushing public debt. And most millennials, I mean, super majorities are also... Uh, strong, have a strong sense of moral duty on environmental issues. Where do they go? Right now, they go for Democrats uh, because of, you know, the perceived attention to things that young people care about. But it's not just young people. Republicans are hemorrhaging moms, millennials, and minorities over important issues that America has decided it wants action on. And I mean, when you have 70% of the country that wants action on something like climate change, you're going to get action. And if the Republicans don't offer a compelling, you know, alternative, don't compete for the voters trust on, on these issues, then Americans have proven time and again that they take what's offered over nothing at all. And that's how we ended up with all the entitlement programs that we have. It's how we accrete a regulatory state over time because conservatives aren't offering the free enterprise alternative. Um, so I, I personally believe that the leaders, the conservative leaders who offer a optimistic vision, you know, uh, are, are going to attract a new generation of conservatives. And I mean, we're in a political realignment right now, so I, I don't think anyone can tell you where the dice are going to land, um, but it's going to be different. I mean, the political party makeup, the, the way that interest groups align, the big tents of the two major parties are going to have lots of different groups underneath, lots of different folks underneath those tents. 
you know, compared 10 years from now, compared to 10 years ago. Um, we just got to hope that both those tents have an environmental component in them. And right now, you know, all the environmental folks are under the, the blue tent. Um, and they have, <laughs> that, the result of that has been politically a uh, bummer for conservatives, but it's been, for all of us, a bummer because it's resulted in pretty bad policy um, to deal with climate change, just anemic policy. Yeah, and and just so we're looking at the the numbers, we still have um, we're still missing the mark when it comes to the goals that that the uh, Obama administration has laid out in the the Paris um, the Paris Agreement in in the sense that we are not really on track without further policy to meet our goals. Um, well, you're calling them uh, goals. of emissions reductions. Yeah, <laughs> you're calling them goals, Eric which is very generous because the president called them commitments and he went and made an extra constitutional commitment to the international community that we would hit a 26% by uh, target below 2005 levels by 2025. But if you add up all the things that he has at his disposal, all the legal means that the government can reduce emissions, the clean power plan, you know, um, oil and gas regulations, landfill methane regs, uh, DOE has some energy conservation programs, HFC replacement. I, I, I think I'm missing some. Oh, the federal government, they can regulate their own emissions. So there's a few different sources from which he could claim legal authority to cut emissions. When you add all those up, I think we're still three or 400 million metric tons of CO2 short, which is you know about as much as we cut with a recession and a natural gas revolution. So... <laughs> It feels like he's either betting on a recession or betting on another technological revolution, which seems a little and, disingenuous. And moving factories to China, too, in that. Yeah, exactly. And, and leakage. It, because the EPA has no jurisdiction over those places. So I, I think that when you look at... And you can't totally blame you know, President Obama or even the Democrats, because I think a lot of them would have totally been willing to deal with conservatives on... Um, on climate policy and the, the subsidy programs, the regulatory programs, when you can compare those to a free enterprise solution, when you compare it to like a, a, a straight up transparent carbon tax, every different metric that you compare policies on, the they lose out. You know, efficacy, static efficiency, macroeconomic effects, you know, political economy. Uh, actually, no, you know what? Political economy is the one where free enterprise loses to regulations right now. Because if you ask Americans if they want CO2 regulated, they almost all say yes. You ask them if they want a carbon tax, a lot of folks uh, still aren't sure. And I think that's a lot like asking people if they wanted to buy aspirin in 1925. You know, they, you're not sure what it is, so you don't know if you want it. So it sounds um, like the, the free enterprise solution is a carbon tax. Is I mean, is that, it? I mean, are we also talking about like, are we talking about things like geoengineering? Are we talking about you know this technological revolution that will be driven by competition and um, you know creating solutions for in a market that doesn't exist yet? I mean, I'm just sort of wondering what the what 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 do you mean? I think that the eco right has a pretty robust policy toolkit here, but it is not as expansive as the environmental lefts because when you have a problem, you know we have a, a pretty rigid set of principles that we need to stick to to try to solve that problem. Whereas uh, I think that progressives may be a little bit more free in inventing government interventions and social programs to deal with 
pretty much every problem you can think of. Um, so we don't have as diverse of a policy toolkit as you know environmentalists, I would say. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, that environmental tax reform is probably the centerpiece um, because you need a price on carbon through the whole economy, uh, as compared to the 30% of the economy that that the clean power plant regulates. Um, but it also, yeah, you're right. It also has to do with fixing market failures in research and development with, for, for funding applied energy research and, and targeted deployments um, for things like ARPA-E. I feel like the eco-right can draw from quite a few different state and federal issues. Yeah, we've talked about this show on the show before, um, uh, how um, work by Yale and, and uh, George Mason has shown that if you go to even to like some of the arch conservative skeptic places in Oklahoma, the, um, there are conservatives, libertarians particularly, who, because of what you just said, love to get off the grid. But it's not because of global warming. And so if you go at them with a, the issue that framed all around climate, um, you're actually building barriers where you, you could have people um, who care about clean energy coming together. But, so there on the left, I see a failure in terms of not being able to open up to this idea that uh, sometimes, at least in some circumstances, the best way forward on climate policy is to not talk about climate, but just to, to talk about the things that people can find common ground on. Yeah, you know, that's a, a pretty popular opinion these days, Andy. Uh, there is a, I'd say, you know, half of the eco-right is out there working on clean energy and on consumer choice and ratepayer rights, and they find success um, because, you know, 80% of the Republicans want to want the government to advance clean energy um, and and I think you're totally right about the the baggage that climate change has just as a word um, yesterday I was in Washington University uh, in St. Louis uh, giving a talk and uh, one of the Federalist Society guys uh, came up to me after well he had asked me a bunch of questions during the talk and then afterwards uh, he told me that he doesn't believe in climate change huh but he acknowledges that humans are contributing to rising temperatures by emitting greenhouse gases. And I said, what? Uh, and he said, well, look, climate change doesn't mean the, sci the, the scientific mechanism by which temperatures rise uh, in, in, uh, uh, as a result of, of human emissions. Climate change is a religion. And and he's tr he's right, you know. It, the, the left has been able to use climate change as the pretense mm -hmm. for a lot of different government interventions. And uh, when the when the, when the wall fell, a lot of reds did turn green. And the messengers on climate over the last twenty years have not been have been predominantly from the left. And the solutions proposed by those folks over the last twenty years have been predominantly big government central planning types of approaches, or they sound very condescending because they sound like some smart, some person who thinks he's smarter than you is going to tell you what kind of car you can drive and what kind of light bulb you can use and, and these things that just feel wrong. They feel like impingements on your liberty. And if that's so, what climate change means, if that's the religion, then he doesn't believe in it. So yeah, sorry, so, go ahead. So that's really interesting because Oftentimes when I engage with climate skeptics or climate deniers on the internet, it doesn't actually come down to a disagreement about whether the earth is warming or whether, you know, how, how carbon dioxide works as a greenhouse gas. It comes down in the end, if you drill deep enough, to 
disagreements about the role of government and and policy. And um, so that's very interesting to me that you know, this idea of climate, climate change as a religion, because, you know, as for me as a scientist, the science, I don't make up or, or reasons to, you know, connect my science to climate change so that I can get, you know, grants more easily. You know, I do science because I care about the planet, but there's this perception that, that this is a, you know, tremendous hoax that we're taking advantage of just to be able to, um, you know, get tenure and, and live, you know, fat on the right. land, you know, I, I, I admire you. And, and your colleagues for putting up with the kind of abuse that you guys get on a regular basis. And I'm just sorry that that happens to you, but I'm very grateful that you're contributing to climate literacy. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I remember Andy has a, a cool metaphor for, for climate politics, which is this water sloshing in a pan, right, Andy? With the, Indeed. And you have the ebb and flow of, the, of politics and that swirls the water around and and, and that's what we saw in the polls about who cares about climate change you know, from about 2000 to 2014 or whatever. We had a little peak there when a movie came out. But I think we're adding water to the pan, which is what I th- you called salience, right? Um, I think we're adding water to the pan. Um, the, that George Mason Yale poll you mentioned shows that the fastest changing group of opinions on climate is conservative Republicans, self-identified conservative Republicans have went from 26% to uh, like 42% over three years in their acknowledgement of climate change. Um, but I, I just, I, I want to, you know, to add to, to Jacqueline just very quickly, it, when you dig down, I don't think it's about uh, a fundamental disagreement on the role of government. I think it's about an inferiority complex. I think that people are, are just, there's a really effective coping mechanism for a problem that you don't want to solve because you don't like the solution. If the solution is anathema, real easy coping mechanism is just to belittle the problem. Um, and I, I don't think they've, I think a lot of conservatives just haven't heard the issue discussed in their language and with not just, and that, that almost sounds condescending saying they have a language, but you know, this issue has been, it's been the left's they've owned it for so long that all the words and the values that get connected to it are foreign from half of this country. And, you know, the environmental left is 60 years old, hundreds of millions of dollars and the eco right is a few dudes in DC. And then our group, which has five folks or six folks, you know, scrappy operation, trying to change the world at republicen.org. Um, we're finding that when you reach people with a credible messenger and a strong message, and you show them that free enterprise can deal with this problem much more effectively than big government. And that you can empower them with the information that their deeply held beliefs are valuable. Like they can be put to use to solve this problem that all these young people care about. Uh, it's, it's a, it changes the game. And, you know, we have to do it more. We have to go talk to more people. Maybe there needs to be an eco-right podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, we just haven't reached enough folks yet. And I, the, all the trend lines are going in the right direction, though. So it's just a matter of time. And I don't know if it can happen in a Clinton presidency, but, uh, but boy, it's going to happen. And the question is just, is it going to happen through this slow accretion of government programs over generations with, where we proxy for a price on carbon and try to tackle this issue with an incoherent jumble of policies? Or are we going to, like, 
make a bipartisan coalition and push a not perfect policy that we can get behind so that we can meet all of those criteria that other environmental legislations have met and at the end of it no one is happy I, we got to get to a point where no one is happy and then <laughs> and then i will be happy i just i really just genuinely hope that it's i i, I genuinely hope that it's possible because um you know i just worry so much that people see the republic in the republic en and there's just been such a history of um of antagonism that, that i i mean I was just talking about incrementalism on our most recent podcast and, you know, how I, I've even lately been starting to be called, you know, a shill for big oil or big coal, which is a, super funny. Um, and it, just because I'm trying to acknowledge that we have to roll our sleeves up and be practical and, you know, worry about the issues that poor people care about and um, reach across the aisle. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it sounds like you, you're not a fan of incrementalism either necessarily, but um I think that the conversations we need to start by having conversations, and that seems to have been the real, the real challenge. Um, at least while my colleagues are still being, you know, called before Congress to defend their science. Climate change is not immune from the same political trends that we've seen across all issues, which is we've went from "I'm right, you're wrong" to "I'm right and you're evil. You're the spawn of Satan. I'm coming after you." And like that is not you can't get anything done in that sort of rhetorical environment so we just got to get past this this crazy election the republican party historically is strongest when it is rooted in a coherent conservative philosophy of free enterprise uh, prudence and american exceptionalism it uh, to get to where we are now it took us several wrong turns uh, we, we i guess it started with the southern strategy then we had this period where we were purging conservatives from the ranks by politically assassinating the moderates in the party. And then, you know, we have this recession, the Great Recession in our party, uh, and, and the right gets infected with populism uh, more so than the left, which is a historical anomaly. Typically, it's been the left that, that gets these surges of populism after um, economic downturns. And uh, initially, it was the Tea Party. And then when you peeled away all the philosophy and the principles that buttressed the Tea Party a little bit. Uh, you ended up with this dried husk of a party whose standard bearer is the, you know, has a philosophy that's really not much more than just fear and American decline and nativism and and boy, that's just not going to sell. So I, I, I think that this is a moment in politics, but the free enterprise party that emerges from the rubble, the rebuild that people like Eva McMullen and Lindsey Graham and Jeb Bush and uh, you know, young folks like Elise Stefanik and Carlos Curbelo, they're going to be at the helm of this rebuild. And the free enterprise party that emerges, that is our hope for a bipartisan coalition to, to, to deal with climate change. That free enterprise uh, reincarnation of the Republican Party, that is, that's where we get climate change done. And that, uh, help, help me make it happen by bringing more conservatives on warm regards and getting them an audience. <laughs> I want to peel off some of your people to become conservatives because I bet they are conservatives if we would just deal with this issue. Which I think will be helped if we can not make this such an embattled issue that people who are working on climate change feel like they have to have their dukes up and not give any ground whatsoever because yeah. they'll be attacked. So we're collectively holding our hands right now. Ways, ra 
raising the white flag, saying we, we want to restart. We, we're going to do this together, starting right here on our warm regards. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> That's our show. Um, if you like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. Um, as always, please hit us up with your thoughts on future guests, show ideas, pretty much anything. We're listening to you. Uh, our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards, assuming we all survive whatever's happening uh, next week. We will be tweeting our, our takes of, of the world to come under whatever president um, a, 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 on Twitter. That's where you will see the revolution. So for Jacqueline, Andy, and our producer, Stephen Lacey, I'm Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd like to thank Arcadia Power for supporting Warm Regards. Arcadia's online platform provides clean energy options to homeowners and renters in all 50 states. Anyone who pays a utility bill is eligible to sign up and start using clean energy at home at no extra cost with a free 50% wind option. Reduce your impact and get four free LED light bulbs sent to your door when you sign up at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. Arcadia Power help to change the way America consumes energy.